hands up before I begin. Normally my dog Bailey likes to lay next to me when I'm reading off these stories for the show for you guys, but today instead I'm joined by her brother Oliver, my other dog. Oliver is quite a bit bigger than Bailey, he's about 110-115 pounds, but the reason why I wanted to warn you that he joined me today is because he does snore. And because he's a big guy, he snores big. So if you do hear any weird noises, it just probably means he fell asleep while I was reading. I don't know what that says about my storytelling skills, but uh, he's decided he wants to take Bailey's spot and snuggle up for a story today, and I didn't have the heart to stop him, so I just thought I'd give you a heads up in case you hear any noises that are different from usual. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll get started. One of the interesting things about storytelling, especially when telling historic stories, is that you're also always learning something new about something old. When I heard that both of today's stories exist, I didn't know how similar they would turn out to be. As I dig deeper and deeper into the past for my business, it amazes me how much of stories is largely unknown, hidden beneath the tip of the iceberg. Even well-known stories are told, retold, mistold, and embellished. The two stories I have for you today were short but fascinating to dig through simply because they were not at all what I was expecting when I began my research. Firstly, I have the story of the Charleston Mermaid. As a massive mermaid enthusiast, I was thrilled to hear that there might be some mermaid lore surrounding the Holy City. The whole incident starts with a man known to everyone who has even scratched the surface of history, the infamous P.T. Barnum. I was first exposed to the story of Barnum's Fiji mermaid upon watching a pretty creepy episode of the X-Files called Humbug. These were the kinds of episodes that I tended to enjoy the most, the episodes that focused the audience's attention on creepy and uncomfortable stories rather than the heavy attention that would be placed on aliens that later is what the show became known for. Aliens aren't really my thing. I know it's popular now, everybody likes aliens not really my thing. I tended to like the creepier stories about cryptids and ghosts and monsters and stuff. I guess I really, I really haven't changed that much now that I think about what that says about me. Who knows? The episode focused on both the glamour and the darkness of circus culture and history. The episode makes references to Barnum and his ability to take those who could not find a place in society and profit off their unconventional lives but also Barnum's belief that there is a sucker born every minute. Barnum was both a legendary showman and a legendary conman. He was quick to swindle those around him, and the Fiji mermaid was just such a con. Barnum drew people into his tents with posters advertising the stereotype of what we all think of when we imagine a mermaid. A beautiful, shapely maiden with long hair protecting her modesty as though the PG rating of a film depends on it. She just happens to have a glittering scaled tail instead of legs. Once people bought their tickets, however, what they got was nightmare fuel. Barnum, or rather someone who worked for him, I'm sure, had all the makings of a Mary Shelley novel in his tent. A head and torso of a mummified monkey was expertly sewn to the bottom half of a fish, creating a three-foot-long abomination. Even the mermaid seems horrified by its own existence. One hand is curled up against its cheek as its mouth is dropped open as though in a scream. After Barnum had horrified the Big Apple with his corrupt creation, he brought it to the Masonic Hall in Charleston from January 17 through 21 of 1843. 
and the presence of the Fiji mermaid sparked intense debate as to its authenticity here in Charleston. Doctors, religious figures, and public officials debated in the public arena of the day, the newspaper, as to whether it was a real creature or a hoax, whether hybrid, such hybrid creatures could truly exist, and the moral implications of what all this could suggest. All this debate pressed into the minds of a generation of Charlestonians and the thought that maybe, just maybe, such a thing might really exist in the deep places about which we know so little today and knew even less then. These questions would be put to the test 23 years later in 1867, when deep, dark clouds cast a shadow over the city and a deluge of rain began to flood the streets. The storm of a century had decided to make its home in Charleston and showed no signs of moving on. Enter Dr. William G. Trott, a strange figure among the citizens. First of all, he was a German immigrant, and his strong accent made him stand out in a crowd. And secondly, his apothecary on Broad Street had taken on an unusual route to gain new customers. People hesitated to visit him for the same pe reason that people hesitate to visit the doctor today. The cost. And he had competition. Dr. Trott lost a lot of local citizens to the treatment of Gullah Geechee root doctors, who were much cheaper. Root doctors used a process very similar to voodoo in that it was a combination of magic and herbal remedies that were a fraction of the cost of getting treated at the apothecary by the good doctor. He needed a draw, and since he was competing with magic, he chose to hang a sign in his window advertising a free magic show to his customers. People were curious, and in order to keep them curious, Dr. Trot made a fatal error. He claimed to have a real mermaid that had washed ashore during a terrible storm and been caught by the doctor. Inside a dark back room, the customers would be led to a large covered tank. The doctor would very slightly lift the cover off the tank, allowing customers a brief glance of the mermaid. A quick flick of the tail and the curtain would be dropped back into place. Many people not only suspected that this was a real mermaid, but that she was causing the terrible storm that would continue to do so until she was set free. In legends, mermaids have long been associated with violent storms and hurricanes. Their hypnotic voices often drawing sailors right into these perilous waters. Some fans even theorized that in Disney's 1989 classic, The Little Mermaid, Ariel may have even unintentionally caused the storm that caused the prince to shipwreck in the first place, unaware of the cataclysmic power innate in her species. On top of the association between mermaids and storms is the ties between various African cultures in Charleston and their link to a shape-shifting water spirit named Mamiwata, or La Sirene. This water goddess could take many forms, but in her natural state was that of a mermaid or a lamia, which, if you remember from our cryptid episodes, a lamia is like a mermaid, but instead of her bottom half being a fish, it's like a snake. Primed by a mixture of African beliefs, Western legends about mermaids and their wrath, Barnum's evidence, quote-unquote, that such creatures might exist, and the fear that was rapidly spreading in the heat of the storm, people were ready to boil over. 500 people rioted the apothecary, throwing stones, breaking glass, and causing as much destruction as they could. Some fought to set the mermaid free and save their city. 
Others fought to free their goddess from captivity. But one thing is for certain, people fought and demanded that the mermaid be returned to the sea. Dr. Trot tried to tell people in the crowd that there was no mermaid, but the crowd rushed to the store, letting in the floodwaters that swept inside and collapsed the building itself. And many citizens swore that they saw the mermaid swimming out to sea. According to legend, the storm stopped within minutes of the riot, but according to history, while the crowd was seeking to free the mermaid from the cellar, the building they were swarming had no cellar. If you live down here in uh, the low country, you'll understand that having a cellar is a pretty rare thing down here. You've got to kind of live on a hilltop because we are so low on the water table that you dig much deeper than six or seven inches and you're getting a flood. Like. It would be very impractical to have a cellar, especially in the city. And what they thought was a mermaid was actually a, the body of a preserved frog. I'll be honest, I think that the rioters were victims of being primed by Barnum, who had visited long enough before the riot to make memories blurry and stories a little bigger than the actual real-life events. On top of this, the perfect blend of folklore and disaster led people to acting irrationally, as emotional people usually do. Like I said, emotional decisions and drunk decisions are usually the same decisions, which is why they're not good decisions. <laughs> it's, it's not great. The rational side of my brain tends to win out on this one, though the romantic in me can't help but admit that it, I would rather believe in the mermaids. Our next story features another South Carolina cryptid, the Carolina Reptile Man. He is also called the Lizard Man of Lee County or the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp. This guy has a lot of names, but those are the three biggies. His story is much younger than the Mermaid Riots. The Lizard Man legend begins in the 1980s. On July 14, 1988, my husband was just shy of a month old and I was careening towards my terrible twos when another youth, 17-year-old Christopher Davis, was on the side of the road with a flat tire. While he was trying to change it, and his, he and his car were attacked by what Christopher claimed was a seven-foot-tall creature that he said was green and wet with three-toed feet, skin like a lizard and snake-like scales with red eyes. Davis put caution to the wind and hopped in his car and took off, abandoning his attempts to fix his car tire along with the lizard man. From there, the sheriff's office was stormed by a flood of calls claiming that people and even more so their cars, were attacked by the lizard man. There were sets of three parallel claw marks, skin, hair, and even bite marks on the cars and muddy footprints stalking away. The neighborhood of Bishopville was terrified and other towns began to take notice. Media fed into the hysteria and what became the, and came to be you know, lizard man t-shirts, figurines, and other merchandise. Tourists began to flood in to look for the monster, giving the local businesses a boost in revenue. Whenever the enthusiasm began to die down, another sighting would take place, until even the city chamber of commerce had to admit that the lizard man was great for the community. A local radio station even offered a reward of $1 million for anyone who could capture the lizard man. Where the story falls apart, unfortunately, is also right where it starts, Christopher Davis. Unfortunately, his version of events and the lizard man's appearance varied widely from telling to retelling, and while he had given his testimony under a polygraph test, the test would admit was administered as a publicity stunt by the Southern Marketing Incorporated. 
which doesn't sound like any kind of institution that would be free of an ulterior motive to me, at least not in this situation. Two theories dominate when it comes to the Carolina Reptile Man. One is that he was created as a way to increase tourism in Bishopville in order to boost the economy, sort of like the townsfolk in Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost. The second theory is placed by investigator Alicia Lutz. She thinks that what Christopher Davis saw at night was actually a who. Lucius Elmore was a local butterbean salesman, because apparently that's a thing, who was guarding his shed at night because he had been a, recently been a victim of several bouts of theft. Apparently, this man's butterbeans are worth the criminal charge of theft. I've never been a fan of beans. I think they taste like dirt unless they have so much sugar that they're no longer healthy enough to bother with. Apparently, the criminal underbelly of Bishopville, South Carolina knows something that I don't because they were robbing the bean boy so often that he was up guarding his beans at night and Christopher, when his tire burst, was uh, kind of the victim of circumstance. Elmore claimed that he heard the tire blow out and thought that it was the thieves, so he walked out into the road to confront them. He said that when Davis saw him, he screamed and took off, busted tire and all. No word on whether this resulted in poor Lucius seeking out plastic surgery of any kind, but if someone reacted that way to seeing me, it would be on my mind. Either way, the reptile man seems to be more and more of a reptile meh. I know, I talk about lots of ghosts, ghouls, and monsters on this show, and every once in a while, I do do worry that you, my sweet listeners, may think that I'm irrational enough to believe all of them. Honestly, I think most of them are just terribly wonderful fun. And like these two stories, most that are not directly historical are easily disproven. Heck, even the historical stories are often the subject of vigorous debate. I think one's worldview is healthiest when backed by rational thought and truth. But remember, that that romantic side that I mentioned earlier... No matter how much I try to squish her with facts, she always sits on my shoulder whispering, reminding me to savor the unexplained because life is more exciting with a little mystery, or even perhaps especially when it is experienced through the eyes of a listener who truly believes. And to me, that's kind of the point of a lot of these stories is not so much that I truly believe that a lizard man stalks the woods here in Charleston or that a mermaid causes us storms, but I believe that they are wonderful stories and they're so fun and they spark the imagination and it's great to pass these kind of stories along. So I do worry sometimes when I'm doing all of these stories that, oh boy, this girl is really superstitious, has got a flash through your mind. I honestly, like I said, don't believe that most of these things actually exist. I've never actually encountered a ghost or actually chased down a lizard man or a sasquatch or a swamp ape. I just think they're great stories. And I think when we lose a culture's stories, we can start kind of losing that culture. And that comes, you know, from that point of view that I had when I started telling fairy tales on here from all different countries. I think the best way to hold on to a, a country's culture is to hold on to their stories. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll tune in next time.